Welcome to Heroic Hearts Podcast, where we will explore the heroic journeys of St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese of Lisieux to heal, inspire, and re-enchant our own hearts. Hello, hello, everyone. Amy Chase here with Heroic Hearts saying hello to all of our listeners and greetings to you, Walter. Hello, Amy. How are you doing today? Hope everything's Uh, well. Doing so good. It is Friday when we're recording this, so we've got the weekend ahead of us, and it's been a crazy week, but everything, I'm just so excited how everything is coming together in all our various projects. Well, that's good. That's good. Well, I'm sad because we have to talk about some turning points in Joan's life today. That is true. (laughs) Oh, I know. I know. This has kind of been a day I've been dreading as well. Uh, Um, But before we get to that, we do have some announcements for our listeners. So I think uh, if you've been following the last couple of episodes, you will have heard us talking about our new website on Substack or our new newsletter, I guess. Um, So we want to let everyone know that we are now on Substack, which is the newsletter in podcasting platform. And you can find us either at heroichearts.substack.com. That's all one word, of course, heroichearts.substack.com. And also our old website um, now directs to Substack. So if you went to um, www.heroic-hearts.com, it would take you to the same place. So either of those two methods, um, we are not quite done with getting all of our content moved over to the new Substack site. So please bear with us. You'll see that um, perhaps some of the episodes are still missing, but we will get there soon enough. And uh, it would really help us out if you all out there would go to our Substack and either like or subscribe or share and help us get the word out. I went to it. It's really nice. Great. Yes. (laughs) Of course. Thank you. And it's also just such a a great platform for putting out content. It's easy. It's elegant looking. And so I think our listeners uh, will enjoy it. Very good. All right. Well, we also have another exciting announcement about season two, season two of Heroic Hearts, because, you know, we're, we will be coming to the end of season one and our discussion of, of St. Joan's Heroic Hearts journey. Walter, do you want to tell us a little bit about what we're planning for season two? Well, we are planning to uh, talk a little bit about the St. Therese. <laughs> and um, so, we, you know, the Heroic Hearts, we've always said you know, about St. Joan, St. Therese. And why those two? Well, they have a very strong uh, spiritual relationship, and uh, I think a lot of people know that there's, there's they're kind of like a, a a duo in heaven, so so to speak. So we want to spend some time talking about Saint Therese in season two, which is going to be very different because she had the heart of Joan of Arc and the spirit, but she lived in a in a convent. Yes, <laughs> it was a very different. Her, her earthly life was very different than Joan of Arc. Can, can the life of a contemplative be heroic, Walter? Well, abs- oh, absolutely. <laughs> All you have to do is read St. Therese's uh, autobiography. She was a magnanimous and audacious contemplative. She, is, she had one, probably the strongest spirit that I've, I've ever read, I think, in, in, in a saint. And yet she was, and, and yet she would, people know her as the little flower. People <laughs> get very sentimental about, it. oh, she's the little flower. Yes. She is a powerhouse. An absolute, she's no daisy. <laughs> oh, she, she's, an, she's an absolute powerhouse uh, spiritually. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, she was obviously very influenced by St. Joan of Arc. 
And um, it, I think it's going to be interesting to res on her own. Yes. As well as her relationship uh, with. with she, she, she did make a comment. Uh, that there was a commentary in one of the books by a, a Carmelite uh, who was editing that said that St. Teresa made a comment at one point that she considered Joan of Arc to be one of the greatest graces she ever received in her life. So they, there's this great relationship between the two of them. So we are going to talk about St. Therese. Yes. And just as we read a book this season, we read Mark Twain's personal recollections of Joan of Arc. We will be reading through a book for season two. And that book is Shirt of Flame, A Year with St. Therese of Lisieux. And uh, that's by Heather King, who many of our listeners will probably be familiar with, a wonderful writer. And we would love to get... Yes, yes. A a good book that we have both read before. And I'm excited. I read it when it first came out. (laughs) I'm excited to read it again. I think I did too, Walter. So so we would like to... uh, We're going to hold a a little promotional. We're going to announce season two on our Substack site. Again, that's heroichearts.substack.com. And we're going to... um, we we will invite you to subscribe and the first five subscribers off of that off of that post off of that announcement we will be sending a free kindle version of the book to so just for subscribing you can get a, a free um kindle version of shirt of flame a year with saint Teresa of Lisieux, uh right to your inbox so we're pretty excited about that fantastic all right. Well, Walter, um, let's. Uh, why don't we go ahead and just start with our our prayer? Would you lead us in prayer? Okay. Thank you, Amy. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The prayer of the heroic hearts. O Sacred Heart of Jesus, form in us missionary hearts, hearts that burn to spread your faith. Heroic hearts of the cross, wanting always and everywhere to bear witness to you. Make us ready to suffer to show our love. And like our sister, St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese, grant us the desire to conquer for you all the hearts of the universe. Mm-hmm. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen, amen. All right, well, should we kick it off with an enchanting moment? Well, why don't you go first? Because okay. I think I went first last time. Sure. <laughs> I had a, a lovely enchanting afternoon recently at the Abbey of St. Michael, uh, St. Michael's Abbey, uh, which is a Norbertine monastery wow. here in Orange County, California. And it's, I just love it. They they have a new church. They re- recently built a Romanesque, a, a church in the Romanesque style. And it's not quite completed, but they're in terms of, um, I, in terms of all of the art, but they're, I think they're pretty close and it's, it's gorgeous. And it is tucked away in this little town of Silverado, California, in these canyons. I mean, you just you get to it by driving down this country road. Uh, there's a few houses here and there, but it's it's largely rural, and um, which is funny because you're only about 15 or 20 minutes outside of a really big <laughs> metro, uh, metropolitan area, and and so it's it's tucked away in, in you know in, in these canyons and. It's gorgeous and it's quiet and the wildflowers, the poppies are blooming because it was after, after a spring rain. And, uh, I pretty much was the only person in the church. I went for a confession. They do confessions daily, which is wonderful. And then I went and sat in the church and it's all, you know, stonework inside and, and, uh, tall, you know, real tall ceilings and this beautiful mosaic, 
with um, with all this beautiful iconography uh, at, at at the um, the apps um, behind the altar and um, just, well, I, just so I wonderful. Be, I may be mis- I may be mistaken, Amy, but I think that those are the Norbertines that took over the shrine of Our Lady Guadalupe in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Oh. I, I think so. Okay. We, yeah, uh, we'll have uh, to fact Cardinal, check that. Yeah, Cardinal Cardinal Burke, who kind of got that shrine in Lacrosse uh, going, uh, was it was uh, taken care of by the Franciscans of the Immaculate. We got to know them very well at at the shrine. But when the the Franciscans pulled the Franciscans pulled them out of that, so they needed to find mm-hmm. someone else. And I, I'm almost positive they said it was uh, Norbertines mm-hmm. from Southern California. Uh, so I, I, I'm thinking it might be the same, the, the same group. Oh, just now also yeah. supporting the shrine of our, the beautiful shrine of our Lady of yeah. La Crosse, Wisconsin. Very cool. So if I'm yeah. wrong, I'm sorry, listeners, <laughs> but I think that's the right. Thing. Okay, well we'll look, we'll look it up, and of course, as always, we'll post these things in the show notes so Actually, our listeners can go I'm check them out. Anything, just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so what about what about you, Walter? Well, I I have a here's an interesting take on an enchanting moment. Um, and, you know, we always talk and I've talked a lot about, you know, s- snow on open fields and different things. And and uh, but I want to talk a little bit about an enchanting moment that comes out of the other side of life. Out of suffering. Mm. Oh, we don't we we live in a world where there's suffering, and there's pain and there's things. And we've always said that enchanting moments doesn't mean you're sort of flying around with the butterflies and in uh, Never Never Land, that we live in the real world. Joan lived in the real world where people fought and they had to die and they had to go through a lot of uh, a lot of struggles. And, and I won't go into a lot of details uh, for, for uh, personal reasons, but a uh, one of my son's best friends uh, died in an accident mm, yes. and died basically in my son's arms. Um, and it was a very extremely, you know, obviously incredibly tragic. Uh, event. So I won't go into all the details, but clearly we've had a rough, this happened just a, yes. a couple weeks ago, we've had a rough, rough few weeks. And of course, working with a son who's, who's handling it magnanimously. Um, but, you know, when we went to the, the funeral and uh, did everything we could, and of course, we've been offering prayers and, and masses and, and things like that for uh, the person, for the family. But what I wanted to say was that in the backdrop of that sadness, and that real life confrontation with suffering, questions, why, all these things, because this was a young person. The person who died was only 26 years old. And amidst uh, all of that, we had some conversations as a family uh, with, our, with our son and have had some very, what I would say, enchanting moments in the sense of really a sense of, of I don't know, coming together of transcending the suffering. Wow. You know, as, as, as a family. And of course, this is going to be a long, hard road because uh, these things come up and like, you know, we, we told, you know, our, our son, you have to look out you can be hit, with, you know, in three months from now or something, or it'll, it's never going to go away as far as a tragedy that you were uh, unfortunately had to be a, a part of, but it was really a moment of, I think of where we found some transcendence and some peace, um, and, and so I just kind of want to bring that out that, you know, enchanting moments, we've always said, it's not just about running through the forest, you know, chasing butterflies kind of thing. 
that we, we know we live in the real world, just like Joan did. We live in a world that's filled with high moments, also filled with low moments and suffering and death and things like that. And you can find these, this moment of transcendence and peace. The Lord is, is able to do that. So I, I hope that qualifies as an enchanting <laughs> moment. It's a little bit different yeah. story than what normally we tell, but, uh, you know, wow. we, we can find, we can find our transcending moments in all aspects of life. Yeah. And, and that's such, I think that's actually a, a very encouraging message, a very hopeful message, because we know that a lot of people are out there are going through losses um, and challenges like that. And we want to remind our listeners that the Lord is always there. You know, he's always present um, in those, in those challenges of yeah. life. So let's, you know, this is also, um, we're also going to be talking about light, uh, loss in today's episode. Yes. Yes. As I said, sadly, we're having to talk about some turns in the story here. All right. But let's go ahead and review some questions, or at least uh, we're going to pose some questions, reflective questions for the listeners, and we will discuss these at the end. My question is, uh, is to describe a time that you were denied something that was really important to you. So, you know, something that maybe you have prayed about uh, that you really wanted with all your heart. How, how did you, how did you respond to that, that denial, that, that answer of no on a continuum of, you know, between bitter disappointment to completely trusting in God? Very good. Yeah. Well, my, my question is uh, pretty, you know, similar uh, and in the same kind of a vein, uh, to think as we talk today about recalling a moment of crisis, when, when your world went upside down, um, and we've all had those moments, you know, li- think about a time when, you know, life was good, you were rolling along, everything seemed to be going very well, and all of a sudden you were hit with something unexpected that really kind of shook your world. It, it could have hit you as hard enough to maybe even threaten your faith. Mm-hmm. Um something, something like that. And, and, you know, what was that experience like? And, and a little bit about, think about, and maybe journal a little bit about how you got through that. And then as we talk today, you can put that in context to what we're going to talk about with Joan and her own experience with going through that kind of a crisis. Yes. And the same kind of denial of, of opportunity that, that Amy, you're talking about. Exactly. Yes. So we're now in the 10th of 12 stages of Joan's heroic journey. This stage is often called the road back because this is when the hero who has now achieved their objective in the extraordinary world turns once again towards the ordinary world and begins the journey home. So like in the in Lord of the Rings, we, um, we can think of Frodo and his friends returning to the Shire after they have destroyed the ring. So, so for someone like Joan though, the road back may only involve the internal longing for home. As we will see in today's discussion, Joan's desire to return home is actually thwarted by her king, by King Charles Seventh. She has new challenges ahead, and these are going to test her even more severely than what she's already faced in her military campaigns. And as we're thinking about this stage and, and thinking about our own journey and experience, the, the virtue we want to cultivate in this stage is really hope. Because our ultimate desire is perceived, but not yet fully attained. And that kind of is, is the definition of hope. When, when you can see that which your heart longs for, but you're not there yet. 
Um, but, but you, but you believe, you know, you, you believe in that vision and that you will get there through the grace of God. So we, we just have to persevere through the final challenges ahead in order to do so. Yeah. And when we find maybe, uh, an, ex- an expansion or maybe that the mission and what we originally thought that there's something far deeper than what we imagined, uh, in, in the beginning that, that, uh, maybe confuses us a little bit as we go forward. Uh, or disappoints us, as you say, or creates a crisis, but that that actually leads to the fact that we're, we're our, the, the, the ultimate mission is really deeper and more fundamentally uh, challenging than what we, what we originally thought. Right, right. A lot of times the challenges in our lives have been on an external plane, you know, like those, the crises that you're talking about, you lose a job, lose somebody you love, that sort of thing. But then really the, the real work is being done on an internal plane, on a spiritual plane. And sometimes that's even more difficult to handle than. Right. Exactly. You take, um, you know, you take Joan's situation. And so Joan of Arc is now, you know, I mean, again, we always say, go back and, and reflect, but it's just been, she's, she's had to overcome challenge after challenge, as we pointed out. Uh, she, she's been truly heroic in overcoming. So it's not just been smooth going by any stretch of the imagination from, you know, heading to Shannon through Burgundian territory, the king, the whole thing we've talked about before, having to win the favor of the king, the even just the, the miraculous battle at, at Orleans. But it has been probably the listener can can see that this has been it's kind of been one glory after another. I mean, it's been challenge, victory, challenge, victory, amazing victory, supernatural victory. It, it really has been an amazing uh, set, of, set, set of events, all the way to the crowning of Charles VII at Reims uh, as the king. And, and what was she tasked with? by heaven, by St. Michael and the heavenly messenger, St. Catherine and St. St. Margaret, was to raise the siege of Orleans, which she did, and to crown... Crown her king. Crown her king, crown Charles. And so she she did. Yeah, <laughs> mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. <laughs> now, wouldn't would most of us go, yay? Like, we're... <laughs> so, all right. So she she's kind of in that mode, right? So her, 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 uh, her father... And some of relatives are able to come from uh, Dom Raimi uh, to the crowning in, in, in Reims. And, and so we're in a glorious celebration. Life couldn't be better. Charles has ennobled her family. She's requested that uh, Dom Raimi would be free of taxation. You know, And it was granted. It was granted. You know, I mean, Charles was like, is that all you want? That's it. Like, all I have to do is just say it. And it's done. And there's a lot more I can do for that. And she's like, you know, Joe, she's, I don't care about her. She didn't care about herself. She cared about other people and, and her home. So things are very good. And, you know, Mark Twain, you know, talks in our, in our early first chapters of what we're reading this week about, you know, sitting in sort of the, the hotel or the tavern with the family and the friends, and that we start to see a little bit of the, the old Joan, right? So Joan's, she's now with her family. And so she's just last, she's, she's really not at this point, general uh, commander in chief, she's laughing, she's having a good time. She's, she's listening to her uncle tell, well, and you can well, that of... story was hilarious. The, yeah. the uncle story of the funeral procession and the bull. If, yeah. if you haven't read it, you, you've got to go read that. Well, it's, it's a, well, it's a great sort of 
it's a story of the common person, right? And it's yeah. something that we all love. And, and we all have, right, the relatives that sit and regale us with tales of, of really nothing, uh, but they're kind of hilarious, but they're just not really about anything. But they don't know. Of, they don't know they're being hilarious. <laughs> yeah, they don't know they're being hilarious. They're just telling a story. And he's just telling the story of, of events back in, in the hometown. And, and it's just, it's, it's just a fun time. And Joan's, yes. Joan's having a good time. And so she wants to go. So in her mind, you know, Amy, everything's been accomplished and she's really ready to just go. And I think there's a couple of, couple of things here that are really marvelous. One is we're going to find out she doesn't get to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but I think the other is that and I don't really hear a lot of people talking about it sometimes, but the fact that all she wanted to do was go home. Yeah. Now you might say, well, what's so big deal about that? Well, I don't, I don't know about you, but if I had gone through all that glory, <laughs> <laughs> if I had, if, if I had such a tale to tell and such a glorious tale, Maybe some of us, it might get to our head a little bit and we might think that uh, uh, we have greater ambitions, right? We should be ambitious and uh, start thinking about how great we are. And, and, you know, some of that natural, some of us, some of us not saying me or anything, (laughs) no, but some of us might react a little bit differently. We've all seen people who take glory and fame poorly, (laughs) And I think a lot of us could be tempted to do that. And yet Joan didn't. Well, the this part of the story where Joan wants so very much to go home and then finds out from her king that she cannot really, I had, I had a lot of compassion for her and it struck home for me because I have been on a military deployment. I've been, you know, at sea for over six months and then to be told that, you know, your mission may get extended or, um, you know, that you might have to be sent to a a new location when you had your sights on home, that is devastating. Right. (laughs) Like it, it, you know, you may have been out there for six months or nine months, but another month that you weren't planning on is like a lifetime. And well, she, and she definitely had that rug pulled out from, she did, she did. So I just, my heart goes out to her in that moment. Right. So she, she had that pulled, uh, pulled away from her. And so one thing that is uh, crucial at at this particular juncture in the story, you know, for our listeners is that this is a turning point. We are at the turning point in Joan's story. It's been glory. It's been victory. It has been crowning of kings. It's been ennobling moments and the mission is complete, but she's not done. The king, uh, Charles, you know, calls her back. And the interesting thing is, is what we'll talk about is Charles calls her back into service, but then he ends up not really doing anything, you know, not, not using her, not no, following not, her military advice. No, not following her military advice or anything. So n- now imagine this, Joan has now not only had the rug pulled out of her underneath her in terms of being able to go back home to her family, but she's going to be pulled into a very frustrating situation. Okay. So what's happened since the crowning, who is still at work behind the scenes? So uh, uh, let's see. The advisor. Tremouille. Tremouille, yes. Have, oh, sorry about that, French. Uh, people <laughs> were probably, um, you know, butchering the name pretty bad. But, you know, uh, his key advisor, Charles's key advisor, who has always been uh, really an antagonist to Joe, who doesn't support the mission and the vision, 
who's only been out for himself, who's always been able to manipulate Charles to his own will and suddenly sees that he's been losing control. And now imagine if you're uh, Tremuia, that you have lost control. You, you've been able to control the, the, the Dauphin, the future king. And now because yes. of this young lady, you're losing control. And that's all you care about is control and self-interest. You're not happy. So he is still working behind the scenes. So we have now a very interesting development in a turn. So Joan is going to walk into not only uh, the disappointment of not being able to go home, but she's going to walk into a very different environment and one that is extremely frustrating. So nothing frustrates Joan of Arc more than having to endure bureaucratic, political uh, dysfunction. Dysfunction, exactly, in, in, in the organization. And that's exactly what she's going to walk into because Charles's key advisor has thrown a monkey wrench into the deal. And, and, and what is, what is this, this monkey wrench? Well, right after the, the crowning, what does Joan want to do with her captains is go now it's time to go on and finish the job. Now we do need to go engage in battle. And, and if you're, if you're going to do that, she wanted to go home, but the King should go and engage in battle. And even if she's going to have to stay, she knows that that's what they need to do is go and engage in battle. And, and I would like to point out that, you know, from a, um, from a, from a military standpoint, she's, she's actually advocating for a very strategic move. Uh, you could say up till now they've had some, she's had some operational successes, obviously, but the, the, the next point is really to solidify the gains they made. It's really a strategic move to rid France of the English for good. Yeah, you, you, you've got the enemy on their heels and so you should go after them. It's, it's a lot, perhaps even like a, a, a sports game that, that, uh, that, that you watch when you get, when you have the momentum and you have the opponent on their heel, you keep coming out. That, that's why the other team calls timeouts once in a while, because they have to stop that momentum. So you're, you're, I think you're exactly right. And that's a, and that's a great observation. Well, okay. So what, what's going on now in the world of the shadowy world of backdoor negotiations that Charles's team is, is involved with? Well, Charles still, <laughs> he would, he doesn't really want to fight. He would rather make peace, which is good with uh, the, with the Prince of Burgundy. And so he lets himself get talked into uh, attempting a peace treaty with the Prince of Burgundy. And the Prince of Burgundy, uh, you know, agrees that they can have like a 20 day truce, something like that. We well, you know that sounds pretty good. Um, and, and that maybe they can reconcile because if they could reconcile and put, you know, uh, the prince, the Burgundy, if Burgundy would fall back under Charles's uh, authority, then they could easily probably route out the rest of the English and, and free France. So that sounds like a pretty good diplomatic move, right? Well, Joan sees right through. <laughs> yes. It, it, and is very passionate when she confronts the conspirators of the king. Yeah. Well, she, she sees, she sees through it. She says, she goes to him and says, what are we doing other than simply giving the Burgundians and the English time to reinforce mm -hmm. Paris? Yep. So what you fell for was the Prince of Burgundy, of course, is happy to have a, a, a treaty for 20 days because that will allow England to bring more troops 
to reinforce Paris during that time. And if you don't see that, so she could easily see. And I'm amazed that Charles couldn't see that. Of course, the Duke of Burgundy, Burgundy is still continuing to um, plan and conspire with the English. I mean, does he think suddenly his, you know, the, 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 these bitter enemies have reconciled? No. Yeah. Okay. Well, you've been crowned. All right. I lost. So I will now kneel before Charles. It doesn't really, uh, doesn't really work that way. P- particularly, you have to remember too, the Prince of Burgundy is uh, 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 f- far richer and more powerful. You know, something we really haven't s- stressed that much, but Charles was flat broke. Yeah. <laughs> he was the rightful King of France, but he, he was basically flat broke. And the Prince of Burgundy was much wealthier and much more powerful. So what you're asking for is, you know, hey, more powerful than me, Prince, can you please agree to kneel before me? And that's that's a pretty uh, tough negotiation. So why would the Prince of Burgundy be like, you know, hey, yeah, let's have a let's let's have a truce and talk this over a little bit. Well, of course, it just gives time to build up the troops. And so Joan knew that and she called him out. But course it didn't do any good so what what happens is um you know Joan sets about to go free or go attack Paris and um now Mark Twain doesn't get into it and I can't cite a source so I apologize for that uh, occasionally I just say I think you know I, I mean I, I've, I've read it and you read a lot of different things about Joan of Arc so you can sometimes run into conflicting stories but I do recall, my apologies to listeners that I can't cite a source, but I do recall reading uh, one source that indicated that that Joan, it could be at her trial, that Joan did not, indicate that she did not receive instructions from her heavenly mm, okay. to, to do this. I, uh, I, like I said, I want to heavily qualify that statement because there could be historians out there and amongst listeners who might challenge that. And I just want to qualify that. But I know I've read a source that indicated that, that now we do know later that her, her voices told her to stay once she was there at, at St. Dennis. But um, so there, there's some, maybe some conflicting um, uh, stories around whether she, because she always had her voices to tell her what to right. do. But she did, at this point, her voices started to become less vocal, shall we say. Yeah, her voices kind of became less. Now, that's <laughs> that's another lesson for us. Not only is she walking into, the rug's been pulled out from under her, she can't go home. And it's not even like she can't go home, but she's going to continue the path of glory. She's now walking into an incredibly frustrating situation. And guess what? The heavenly voices are becoming a little bit more quiet. So have we ever had moments when we felt like God was withdrawing from us? God is just silent, yes. God is silent. Where are you? I used to feel the presence of God. Now I don't. Well, Joan was starting to feel that too. So she went headlong into Paris. And so they they attack Paris and they they do not have success. And she gets injured again. She takes a, a arrow in the foot or something like that. But she gets she does take an arrow and she gets uh, she gets injured again. But they they don't uh, they don't succeed. Now that's nothing particularly new, in that if you if you read when they when they battled it early on, uh, they didn't just go and immediately attain victory. They 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 fought and then they were repelled and they fought and they were repelled and they finally had the, the big victory. So the fact that she she fought and and didn't succeed at first and was repelled is not is not really a particularly big deal. Uh, but she she was pulled away because of her injury. But here comes really just an astonishing moment and, and a true indicator 
of the turn in Joan's life. Charles, whom she just, <laughs> I know it's amazing. He hid away south of the Loire Valley, let her do all his fighting, timidly was afraid to go to Reims because, oh my goodness, there are English Burgundian forts on the way. And she brought him all the way up there. She got him crowned. And for all that, he betrays her. Uh, <laughs> just goes right to the heart. Yeah. It, how does that, you know, so is Joan living in the real world? She's living in the real world. Um, and so how did he, how did he betray her? Well, he, he basically calls off the attack. He, he orders the attack. So they were getting ready for another run. So they're trying to patch Joan up. They're getting ready for another run. The Duke of Alençon is trying to build a, a, a more secure bridge. So they're, they're going to keep doing it. And what, what time frame are we talking about now? Just to give now, us a little context. A couple of months. This is September after the crowning in July. Right. In 1429. 1429. So yeah. you go back to uh, uh, May 8th of 1429, the final freedom of, of Orléans when the English turn around. She, she won at Lake Terrell May 7th. She, the English leave on May 8th. They still celebrate May 8th uh, to this day, uh, which is coming up, by the way. And uh, then she clears out the Loire Valley through June and leads the way up to Reims. And on July 17 of 1429, she, uh, Charles is crowned uh, king. So we're only, we're only a couple of months later. We're in September of 1429, and Charles is already back to being Charles. Mm -hmm. Listening to his advisors and being diplomatic to conniving with conniving people and being gullible and pulls the rug out from her again and tells her to call off. So the Duke of Alençon is trying to build a bridge and she gets the word from, she gets the word from the King to, to call it off. Now she says, and Mark Twain points out, she said, if I hadn't been injured, <laughs> I would have gone on and attacked anyone. But she couldn't help it. She was hurt, said to drag her off. And then to, to add insult to injury, to make it even worse, Charles disbands the army. Yeah. Char I mean, literally. Unbelievable. So here's <laughs> the hard part. Uh, Joan, you can't go home. I need you in my service. Okay. Call off your attack and I'm going to disband your army. I mean, what I like, what kind of a there's. There's, not not uh, to justify it, but I think it makes sense if you realize that it's very expensive to um, maintain a standing army. And so he probably, besides getting a lot of bad advice from his advisors, he's probably being influenced by his financial concerns. Well, uh, that's a great point, Amy. It's very insightful. And I, I'm sure that that's a, a lot. His, now, of course, his advisors are wanting this to happen. You got to remember, his yeah. advisors are are not thinking in terms of, say, a different perspective from Joan, where we all are working toward the same end, but we just have different perspectives. That's really not what's happening because they they don't want... Let, Joan has been one big pain for them. They had control of Charles. They had control of... of and she's taken that away. So they're, they're really... They, you know, so I'm sure they did like talk reason to him about, oh, no, this is very expensive, Charles. And... You know, so and, and to Charles, you know, he probably figured all that sounded very reasonable. And hey, we have a treaty with uh, Prince of Burgundy anyway. And so basically it all dissipates uh, in, in front of her and they have to retreat and they end up, uh, you know, not taking Paris. So, you know, as we reflect back, Paris is the first time that Joan did not achieve her objective. 
You know, so really the first time that, I mean, she always went into battle. She, she won at Orléans. She won at Jargot. She won at Mons. She cleared out. She had a great victory at Pate. Every, every, uh, every time she brought her forces to bear, she won. And this was the first time she did not succeed in her objective. So things are changing and, and it happened in the worst possible way. She's betrayed, you know, by her own. And, and that's not the first betrayal. Now, another thing too, uh, Amy, is Joe, it's difficult to say exactly when she was uh, projecting this, but Joe was, she was getting, I don't, whether it was a premonition or whether it was her voices, she could, she knew that betrayal was coming. Now, Mark Twain posits Charles's maneuvers here as the betrayal, but we have a actually another event coming up that is really more reflective of the betrayal. And there was a question one time asked of Joan, said, you know, what, you know, what do you, do you fear? And basically Joan's position was, I don't really fear, I don't fear the Anglo-Burgundian army. I don't fear any of that. What do you fear? She, she said, I fear betrayal. That, that was what she was afraid of was she could, she she wasn't worried about fighting the Burgundians or the English. She was worried about betrayal. So what does she do then? Okay. After this very disappointing maneuver and and Charles, you know, being Charles again. And, um, but I I don't know, you have to kind of pause and think, is it not devastating? How could he do that to her after everything? She gave him everything. Yeah. That's why I have to almost pause here again. Listeners, can we fathom? And this is not even the worst of it yet for, for Joan. This is the beginning of, of the worst. So, so now what does she do? Okay, so Charles, who insisted that she stay, now has this very strange, and again, he's, he's being influenced by his advisors again. He has this very strange attitude. It's almost as if he begins to resent her, that he begins to um, kind of wander out of the way. So, <laughs> yeah, and Mark Twain gives us a little foreshadowing of that. I think during the crowning, uh, going back to our previous episode, um, just that she had the adulation of the crowds. You yeah, know? yeah, she everybody adulated Joan, and, and deep inside, I think Charles had to know, you know, a, a, a person of weak moral character is is they have to kind of know deep inside uh, that that they. That's it. And, it. and whether it became obvious or conscious to Charles, mm-hmm. it had to bother him that he really wasn't the person that he needed to be underneath that crown. And Joan was everything and more that she needed to be and yes. didn't, have, didn't, didn't have a crown. And so it was almost as if he just kind of wandered out of the way. So what did he, basically she just fought little skirmishes. So through, um, through the winter and into the spring, she just fought. It's like, oh yeah, Joan. So the the entire uh, France still had problems because not not they still had a lot of robber barons and, and people like that, a lot of independent uh, barons who were proclaiming their own castles to be independent and, and things like that. And so it's oh, there's a problem over here. So Joan gets some people and go take care of it. So it was it was kind of like what to me I get the idea. It was kind of like a superstar having to play on the JB sort of mm. <laughs> play with the B team a little bit. You're just out there fighting some skirmishes. And, and so she, she did that for a while. So imagine, have you ever felt, have the listeners, have you ever felt completely underutilized and completely disappointed 
in how you are being, and you know you're capable of so much more. You know what could, you know what could be accomplished. Sure. Yes. Yes. And yet you're just you're you're stuck by order, by command, by job to just do this same this little old stuff that doesn't seem to. Doesn't perhaps seem perhaps you were a important high power executive, and now you're a new parent changing diapers. Yeah, you know, exactly. like you just exactly. feel like what exactly. happened? Exactly. So that's kind of the situation she got in. But then she goes off on a campaign. Now remember May of 1429. She frees Orleans, the, the magnificent supernatural victory in May. Well, we're coming up now a year later in May of 1430. And what happens is after all this mess with uh, post-crowning Charles, she's fighting a campaign in, um, in Compiègne. Um, and they, uh, she had been talking about fearing betrayal. Now, this is another one of those stories where you're never going to read the same story twice or, you know, different <laughs> stories. They're all going to, they're going to tell it differently through different lenses. But she was captured at Compiègne. So Joan of Arc was finally captured by the Burgundians in, uh, at Compiègne. Now, how did that happen? Now, Mark Twain doesn't really seem, he gets into the battle. And, and, and about her, you know, she's drug off the horse since she's captured. And he doesn't mention it, but it was actually a, 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 a man that was that was fighting for uh, Jean de Luxembourg, who had fealty to the Prince of Burgundy. So mm-hmm. it was essentially, she was taken by the Prince of Burgundy's people through, uh, through Luxembourg, and, or a man fighting for Luxembourg. And so she was, she was taken. Now imagine you're the person who, who captured Joan. Oh, Mark. what a trophy. <laughs> oh yeah. Now, yeah, yeah. You have to remember this is truly now go back again to the medieval times. What you, what you did with the common soldiers, one thing when you captured them, but what you did with royalty and high ranking people, Oh, that, that's yeah. money. That's money in the bank. Which I want to stress again, you mentioned it earlier, but it, it was so quick that perhaps our listeners didn't catch it. She, Joan is royalty now because the king has ennobled her entire family. Right, right. She, yeah, exactly. She's worth, Joan's worth a lot of money. And, and just being Joan who humiliated and destroyed the chances of the Anglo-Burgundian alliance to do what they were going to do. She is one trophy and she's worth a lot of money. So no, you don't kill Joan of Arc. That's a complete waste of money, right? And so uh, they go for ransom, and and you know that's remember that's what happened to the Duke of Alençon. It's what happened to right. the Duke of Orleans. So that's what happened in medieval times. So she's taken, and now she's being held uh, uh, for ransom. But let's go back to uh, Compiègne. What happened? Because Joan of Arc's fought in many many battles. She's never been captured. Always been protected. By heaven. So what happened? Was heaven looking the other way, or did they not? Heaven was taking a break that day. We've had those feelings, right? You know, of course. Is, 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 <laughs> hey, is anyone home in heaven today? Because I really could use some help. Well, no, of course. Uh, our Lord's Almighty, you know, He sees and knows all. So it wasn't anything like that. But she, um, one of the most interesting stories is that. Uh, she bravely was protecting her troops as they were retreating back. They went out for a skirmish and they were retreating back behind the gates of Compiègne. And that she was bravely protecting the rear guard, you know, as she always does to protect and make sure that everybody gets back in. 
and that the gate was pulled up before she could enter. And, you know, that, again, historians out there in, in, in listener land, you can check different, you know, different stories. But I think that's one of the most interesting stories or hypotheses. Mm-hmm. I don't know that anyone made a definitive, but a hypothesis is that the betrayer was behind oh. the Compian and, yeah. and purposely raised the gate before she could, she could, she could. Oh, get. that's just pure treachery. Yeah. And so now she's out there. She has no place to retreat to and she doesn't have all of her, all of her men. And so she does what she can. And uh, eventually they grab her and they pull her and they, they capture her. Now, do you know, uh, was Jean de Metz, her, her faithful knight, was he still with her at this point? That's a great question. His name doesn't come up that I'm aware of in this particular battle. Uh, and that, that, that's a great question because he was with her all the way. Mm-hmm. I, I don't honestly know where John Demet was. Yeah. But you have to remember this is post. So Lahire's not there. Right. Dunois's not there. Now, why, why aren't these famous people with her? Well, remember, we're post crowning. The army's been disbanded. She's just off fighting little skirmishes for the king. So she has a whole new group of people. She has a whole new group of people. And so it's not like this, this, you know, the same old army, but she had been winning all the skirmishes she fought. She was, she was winning, mm-hmm. but the, the one in Compiègne, but she knew she had a premonition that this was going to uh, happen. And that, you know, really from a, I guess, a theological uh, you know, perspective, um, you know, pe- people have noted it has been, you know, written how closely Joan's life imitated the life of Christ in terms of, you know, leading ultimately to a, a passion, to, to victory and to a passion. And what, we, what, we're, what we'll see, even if it's in, in retrospect, as we look back and, and read the future chapters and next, as we start closing the story on Joan of Arc a little bit, is that this is really beginning her, pa- beginning her passion. So what happened to the Lord? He was betrayed and which led him into his passion. And so Joan is betrayed and she's led now into her passion, which is going to take a year. So we're in May of 1430 and Joan's going to go through a very rough year until uh, up through May of 1431. And when, when the final end is, but she's going to go, she's going to go through a very rough year. And so it starts with being imprisoned um, by Luxembourg, for the Duke of Burgundy. And so now what there has to be, who's, who really wants Joan of Arc? Well, the, the English want Joan of Arc. And so there has to be a negotiation now. So this is, this is interesting medieval politics. So you're the, you're the, you're the Prince of Burgundy. You're powerful and you're rich. And there's a reason the English want to align with you. And quite honestly, if you wanted to just fight off the English yourself, you might make a pretty good run at it. And they know you're powerful and you're strong. And the Prince of Burgundy is also a pretty shrewd player. Uh, he's no dummy. <laughs> he's a pretty sharp tack. And so he knows that he has negotiating power now over the English. And so the English, so they're, they're his allies, but they want Jones. So they have to come and negotiate a price. So the, the Duke of Burgundy is... Uh, now negotiating a, a price for 
um, for Joan. So th that's kind of where we leave Joan is she's been captured. So she's, she's been betrayed twice at this point in our, in our episode, she's been betrayed once by the King to pull her, her troops back from Paris. And then she's actually been betrayed at Compiègne, uh, literally to have the bridge pulled up on her. And she's now captured. She is now in the hands of the enemy. She's in the hands of the Prince of Burgundy and he's negotiating the price for uh, the English to take her. And so, as you can, I told you in the beginning, this is sad. Uh, I, every time we get to this part of the story, whenever I've read it in the past, I always hope it's going to take a different turn. And it never does. <laughs> well, we, we, always end, we always end our podcast with, and what a great victory. And we've got more victories <laughs> coming down the road. But sure. now we're leaving the uh, listeners, we're leaving you with, uh, oops, uh, something's changed. And we're in a different modality here and um it's it's a little there's some clouds on the horizon and we're, we've got a difficult we've got a difficult road ahead of us we've got a difficult road really all the way to the end yeah we have a difficult road so yes but but there will be a crown of glory so to speak so we do want to hold out you know as we were saying earlier we want to hold out that hope ultimately there will be that victory Yes. Okay. Well, Walter, let's go ahead and take a few moments and look at our reflective questions and see what, what Joan's experience is bringing up in our, in our minds and our own experience. Well, I know they were very similar. And I, I had mentioned in mine to yeah. the moment of crisis when your world went upside down and life was good and hit you with an unexpected challenge. And what was that like? And now you can see why I was asking that reflective question. Mm -hmm. um, that's exactly what happened to Joan. And, and your question, the same, yeah. really, having, having the rug pulled out from her. When we have these, these expectations of how we think our life should go and it doesn't. And, um, you know, I could speak to a, a very personal experience and that is that my husband and I wanted children and we were not granted that, you know, and, and that is, that was a, a long road of coming to terms with it. And I think though that through a very great grace of God, I was, we were able to handle that disappointment with some equanimity, yeah. you know, with just trusting that, okay, well, the Lord has something else for us yeah. and that's okay. Well, and that's something we'll see. It's a, it's a beautiful uh, 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 story, a poignant story, Amy, and, and we'll see that with, with Joan. Uh, one of the things that I know we're going to be wrapping up here, but uh, really would like for the listeners to think about as we read forward is how Joan handles the, uh, the enormity of suffering that she's going to go through and how she does handle that, the amazing faithfulness of, of Joan of Arc. It's just astonishing how someone can have that kind of persistent faith. And that alone will be an inspiration. So when we say it's taking a turn, It'll be a heartbreaker mm -hmm. for us, but I think it no less, just like my enchanting moment I was talking about, it, you know, it comes, we're going to see inspiration and in very inspiring moments though, from a darker and, and harder yes. side of life. Yes. Transcendence out of the darkness. We'll see yeah. transcendent. Really. I think it's a great way to put it, Amy. I love the way you put that. We're going to say, I think we're going to see a transcendent victory of Joan. Mm -hmm. but through a different perspective on life than what we've been seeing. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, let's go ahead then and um, we'll we'll close out this episode. So for the next one, we're getting to the end of the book. So hang in there with us. We're now going into book three. So book three, the final book of Mark Twain's personal recollections of Joan of Arc. And we're going to read chapters one through 12, chapters one through 12. And this part of the story, it does remain very interesting. And we still do get to see Joan as just the incredible, brilliant woman that she was. Excellent. Look forward to it. All right. Well, embrace the journey. You were born for it. We will see you all in the next episode. Thank you, Amy. Thanks. Bye-bye. See you. Bye. So we'll sign off for now, but stick around for Amy reading our closing poem. Thanks for listening. If you want to discover enchantment and adventure with St. Joan and St. Therese, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us at heroic-hearts.com. Happy the Man by Richard Wilbur Happy the man who, journeying far and wide, as Jason or Ulysses did, can then turn homeward, seasoned in the ways of men, and claim his own, and there in peace abide. When shall I see the chimney smoke divide the sky above my little town? Ah, when stroll the small gardens of that house again, which is my realm and crown, and more beside? Better I love the plain, secluded home my fathers built than bold facades of Rome. Slate pleases me, as marble cannot do. Better than Tiber's flood, my quiet Loire, those little hills than these, and dearer far than great sea winds, the zephyrs of Anjou.